Welcome to Season 5 of the HPS Cast. I'm your host, Colbert Cannon. If you're new to the pod, HPS is a global investment firm. We manage approximately $80 billion in assets for a broad range of institutional investors. That capital is invested across private credit and public credit strategies. Each week, I sit down with key relationships to and partners of the firm to learn from their experience, ask how that experience shapes their current roles, and give insights into HPS and how we operate. So with that, let's bring in our guest. Our guest this week had a long and distinguished career as an investor before one of the all-time successful late career pivots when he became a best-selling novelist three times over. He graduated from Yale undergrad and Stanford grad school, where he pursued his interest in English and fiction writing. He moved to New York in the late 80s and in short order joined up with a friend who was launching an investment firm called Select Equity. He spent over two decades there in various roles, notably as their director of research, before stepping down in 2012. Since then, he's published three novels of note, all of which are truly brilliant, specifically Rules of Civility, A Gentleman in Moscow, and most recently last year's The Lincoln Highway. I'm lucky to call this man a friend, and I'm always blown away how someone can be so good at a particular walk of life before finding great success in something completely new and different. So without any further ado, I am thrilled to introduce this week's HPS cast guest, Amor Toll's Renaissance Man Extraordinaire. Amor, welcome to the pod. Thanks, Cole. It's good to be here. Well, thanks for being here, Amor. Where'd you grow up? Where are you from? I grew up in the Boston area, you know, in a typical sort of suburb just outside the city. You would call it an upper middle class life of the 70s. Now, there is a childhood story about you online that if you wrote in a Hollywood script, the studio would suggest it's a little too on the nose to be believable. Can you confirm that you, in fact, threw a message in a bottle into the ocean as a 10-year-old and tell our listeners who found it? It is true. I think I was more like eight, but, you know, you can't trust the internet, Colbert. Um, my family summered uh, on Martha's Vineyard Island off the coast of Massachusetts. And towards the end of a summer, I did write a note, stuffed it in a bottle, threw it out into the ocean. I think it said, you know, dear sir, I hope this makes it to China. You know, I, I was so I was young enough not to understand that the person in China wouldn't speak English. Right. So but at any rate. Yeah. Nor do traditionally the yeah. oceans flow from Martha's Vineyard to China. Either way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I certainly didn't understand that aspect. I'm, but I'm, I still don't totally understand that aspect. But at any rate, so I did throw it in the ocean and we got home at the end of summer. I remember very vividly getting home, the big stack of mail, my mother going through the stack and saying there's a letter for Amor. And, she, and then she sort of pauses, she goes, and it's from the New York Times. And it was a sort of a small envelope, like, like the size of a postcard. There was a, a hand-typed, you know, said, Master Amor Tolls. It turned out that the person who found the bottle you know, was then one of the managing editors of the New York Times, a man named Harrison Salisbury, who had been correspondent in the Second World War for the Times. He was the Hanoi bureau chief during the Vietnam War. He was the Moscow bureau chief during the Cold War. And when he kind of came back to New York, serving as a managing editor, he was the person who launched the op-ed page for the Times. So he's sort of a, a real classic, old school reporter, journalist, a man of great stature within the Times world. And he also you know, was about six foot three or something like that. And so we corresponded between the time I was eight and 18. And then I finally met him in New York when I, when I was 18 years old. I love it. What a story. It was all meant to be. So you study English undergrad. What did you focus in and why was that the right course of study for you? For me, writing was an extension of the reading process. And, and it was going back and forth between reading something that intrigued me and then trying something different as a writer and then that was defined the evolution of the craft for me. So it was very natural when I got to Yale, I wanted to study literature. That's what I did. So I was all in. <laughs> you go on to then get your MA at Stanford where you had a fiction writing fellowship. Tell us That's about right. that program and what you were doing then. Having written fiction a lot at Yale, and I, I was very lucky that 
when I was at Yale, a very accomplished fiction writer and naturalist, all around extraordinary person named Peter Matheson came and taught at Yale for a semester. I got into that seminar. You know, we became quite close in a way. My entrance into that seminar was a major turning point for me. What ended up happening is when I got into Peter's seminar, after about maybe three or four sessions, he would basically say, everybody hand in a story. And then the following week, he'd say, okay, you and you read your stories. Or you, you and you. And, and I had like a run, maybe in the first four weeks, three of my stories he asked for me to read out loud. And at the end of that, of the fourth class, he said, listen, can you stay for a second? And so I stayed and everybody left. And he said, hey, listen, I don't know who you are. I don't know anything about you. I don't know what you want. I don't know why you're here. But I think, having read your work so far, that there's a good chance that you may be gifted at this. So I'm going to take my time with you very seriously. And you know, I, what I hope is that you're going to take your time with me very seriously, too. It was a very important moment in my life. Having said, you know, you go through this back and forth internally in your mind, the exaggerated sense of your own abilities and your fear of, that you're deluded. You know, this is really the first point where there's an external voice that confirmed one of those two sides. And that's in a huge moment for a young artist because suddenly it's like, you know, wait, I can do this. And I, like I tell, you know, young artists or young writers, you know, you don't need that to happen 20 times in your life. You need it to happen like twice because the strength of that response from that person or a person that you respect and you respect their work and they're older than you and all those things, it's not your mother. By the way, if your mother likes your work, it doesn't matter, or your grandmother or grandfather. So you, you need that external person who you've gotten into the room through your own work, that you know, the person is measuring you against your peers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then has a sort of a, a connection to the, your approach to the work. I might have framed this wrong because I came at it from a, you had a career as a finance executive, and then you went to this later in life. And actually, let's think about the finance side as more of the step aside from what you were actually meant to do before you came back to it. So you moved to New York. It's 1990 timeframe. 89. 89. Tell us how the select equity opportunity came about and tell us what you were doing there. Well, I went to Stanford after Yale, immediately after, and I wrote fiction there. As you said, it was a part of a fiction writing grant. So when I arrived in New York City, my intention was to write fiction. That was my goal. I lived in an illegal sublet in the East Village, right next door to the headquarters of the Hells Angels on Third Street. And it was, my goal was to be writing books. So I, I figured I got to get work because this is not, I'm not, I'm not making the most of having 100% free time and I'm not enjoying it and I'm broke. So I began looking around and I, my friends who were painters, musicians, writers, and those who were a little bit older than me, let's say, many of them went in one of two routes. They either went and became like a waitress or bartender, you know, and made very good money. If you were a writer, you were, you know, a fact checker at the New Yorker, if you were lucky, you know, or you were the assistant to an editor at answering phones. And so I'm like, neither of these seems to be particularly productive. <laughs> and the pay is not very good in either case. So I was like, you know, maybe I'll go get a job as a researcher on Wall Street. And so I began looking around for a job and a friend of mine had started his own firm and he was alone at that moment. And, uh, and he said, listen, if you're working, looking for work in the investment field, why don't you come work with me? And, you know, 20 years later, I was still, we were still side by side. I'm always interested in people's process. How did you learn what you didn't know on the job? Well, we were both in our early 20s at the time. The founder had been investing since he was a kid. So he knew a lot more than most, you know, 24-year-olds, vastly more, because it was his passion. So he'd read everything and he had very intimate knowledge and a very strong sense of what he wanted to do. For me, it was more learning in an apprentice fashion, you know, 
talking with him, working with him, studying with him, and then picking it up as quickly as possible. But then you start to merge and it's really becomes part of the fun about being an entrepreneur as a young person is that your learning curve is much faster than if you were in an institution because you're responsible for everything. So every aspect of the firm, do we have to write the brochure? We had to figure out how to find clients. We had to figure out how to communicate with them. We had to figure out how to open accounts, how to balance accounts, how to trade, how to you know close execution. You know The list goes on and on and on. We had to figure out how to find it, get a fax machine. We've interviewed a number of entrepreneurs on this podcast. They always say some version of that. And I believe that wholeheartedly. Like you never really understand what happens at a large institution unless you've tried to build your own small institution. And there's just a ton that there's learnings in that. But maybe last question about Select Equity. You had not obviously published your books then, but you're obviously this incredibly talented writer. How important was that on the job? Was that an itch you got to scratch on the job or was that a sidelight still at that point? No. So what happened is I stopped writing for 10 years while we were really making, you know, establishing the foundations of, of the firm and uh, recruiting people, refining our craft, building our brochures, attracting clients, finding companies, et cetera, to invest in. And so I stopped writing for 10 years, but I kind of knew in the back of my mind that it would really be a disaster for me psychologically, emotionally, if I did not ultimately write a book that I was proud of. So I wrote a book. Yeah. So get me forward to there, Amor. Walk me through that. How did we get from point A to point B there? I realized I had to start writing. So I, I had to carve out time. I figured out when I would have my window and because it was weekends and nights, I was still, you know, a full working professional. So I started writing this novel. It took seven years. In the end, I didn't like it enough to submit it to anybody. But what I learned from that was that I needed to outline. I did not outline that book. And particularly having a job, I was spending a lot of time trying to figure out where I was every time I got a window to sit down and write. And I didn't know where I was going. You framed it up as the, on one level, this belief in yourself, and then there's this delusion. After struggling with it for that long, how did you get the confidence to say, no, no, I actually can do this and I can get out the right novel. It's there somewhere. Small thing I skipped over, but, you know, getting into Stanford and getting the fellowship, that's a plus. There was, that helps me. But you're still unproven in the grand sense, in the substantial sense. So, so and that's part of the anxiety, of course, is that even then, is now I've gotten some clarity that I can do this, but am I going to do it? Could I do it well? you know, in a serious way. And so you're still grappling with that stuff. How long did it take you to write Rules of Civility? I learned from the failed mistake. I said, okay, I'm going to outline it carefully. I'm going to give myself a year to write the first draft. And that's what I did. I wrote Rules of Civility in a year. I started on January 1st. I ended on New Year's Eve. And then I, I revised it a number of times from beginning to end along the way towards submitting it to others and then getting an agent and then having it published. And when that became a, out and became a bestseller, that's when you know, I retired maybe a year later. So you write your book, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, more than a handful of reviewers are favorably comparing it to F. Scott Fitzgerald. I mean, you got unbelievable reviews, not just because of some of the themes it addresses. What was that like for you reading those early reviews? The reality is, is that this is true in the, in the professional arena. There's this whole array of benchmarks that you're hitting between, you know, submitting the original manuscript and the, actually the book coming out and being reviewed and, you know, being on the bestseller list, right? And those benchmarks include, like, is there an auction? Do, are there multiple publishers who want the manuscript? In my case, yes. Is there an auction for it? Yes. So is, do they pay a meaningful price? Yes. And so you're getting benchmarks. But then the bigger ones become, which is, and this is sort of behind the scenes, six months before publication is when you have a finished manuscript that is bound in a form of a paperback. It's called an advanced reader's copy or an ARC. And that is initially distributed to the sales force of a publishing house. And that's your first 
serious window because the publisher, the editor who's bought your manuscript loves it, you know, but they may be wrong. They've made a commercial decision, but they're also attached to your work. And so the sales force though is not, right? A whole bunch of editors are buying things and the editors are buying multiple things and they're all throwing it into the pool. And the sales force then has the job of going out and talking about those books with the field and the stores and everything else. And so when the feedback comes from them saying, ooh, you know, this out of all the things we're doing this year, I'm really excited about this. That's a big indicator. All right. So as you said, you have a success with rules of civility. You step down from your finance career. You then publish A Gentleman in Moscow in 2016. How different was your writing process when it was your actual job as opposed to your night job? It wasn't very different. The process that I sort of designed for myself to write rules of civility ended up being so effective for me. You know, I immediately pursued it in very close parallel. But you're right, I could go more into greater depth because I had more time and I had more continuity of time in a way more important. And uh, that allowed me to tackle a book that wasn't simply 50% longer, as a gentleman in Moscow was, but, you know, spanned 30 years instead of a year. Well, let me ask about that. You know, like rules, it does have a profound history embedded in it. And for those who haven't read it, I've loved all your books. Gentleman in Moscow, I have a particular affinity for. I, I think it is completely brilliant. The titular gentleman is a nobleman who ends up working at a Moscow hotel and in the wake of the Russian Revolution. It has profound history embedded in it. You make early 1900s Russia coming forward for decades really come to life. How much work did it take to get that right? I'm curious about like your research process to really make that come alive. I'm not a research guy. So I don't pick a topic, research it, and write a book. I would rather write about something that I know a great deal about. So I will be a more effective fiction writer if I do that. So if I'm drawing on something that I have deep knowledge in. And so I fell in love with the Russian writers of the 19th century as a, you know, when I was 19, 20, 21. And then that grew into an interest in Russian culture that I sort of absorbed over 20 years. So when I decide I'm going to write a book about a guy trapped in a hotel, which you know, was the premise of a gentleman in Moscow, I immediately was like, oh, yeah, set it in Russia. That would be great. But I never would have made that leap if I didn't have the deep knowledge of the culture that may- meant that I could invent it in a way that felt natural. In that same vein on themes, your novels, this also holds true for Lincoln Highway, which we'll get to, you tackle society and social strata in a really interesting and thoughtful way. As we said, he was a nobleman who ends up in, you know, trapped, as you say, in a hotel. Why is that subject area such an interesting theme for you? I don't 100% know, but I think that the, a major part of it is, I think it's a very, it's a very interesting topic in American life. There's different versions of it in American life. But if you look at New York City, just as an example, and Rules of Civility is set in New York City and Lincoln Highway, they end up in New York City. And I've lived in New York City for now more than half my life. But as an an example of what's going on in America, you know, there are not two classes in New York City. They're not four. There's not eight. There's like 40. You know, just every tier is every little shift from the brand new immigrant to the, you know, the family that used to have wealth and lost it to the entrepreneur. And then there's different problems as people deal with different things. And so anyway, so it's, I think it's very interesting to try to unpack that when you take a series of characters to try to understand where are they in the mix? Are they moving up? Are they moving down? What are they carrying into the situation? What prejudices do they have? What sort of false uh, illusions do they have? What advantages do they have? Disadvantages? You know, all that kind of stuff I think is fascinating. So with that anymore, let's move to the Lincoln Highway. Now, I have to say, one of my favorite classes I took in college was the concept of the hero in Greek civilization taught by Professor Naj, a brilliant man. And in reading Lincoln Highway, before we even meet Ulysses on the train, as I read it, I had this profound sense in your book of the hero's journey and this sort of Homeric adventure that, that unfolds. How did you choose that theme and structure as a central spine for this work? 
the reality is, is that I start with something very simple. Always guy trapped in a hotel for a long period of time. That's the notion that struck me that led to a gentleman in Moscow. In the case of Lincoln High, it was kid gets out of a juvenile facility, juvie in essence, in the Midwest. He's going to be driven home by the warden, having done his time. And he's going to think that he's about to start his life anew. And it turns out two guys from the juvie center have hidden in the trunk of the car. That's where I start. And then you start building on that very quickly. Oh, it'll be in the mid-1950s. That's great. It'll start in the Midwest. The whole story will be 10 days. The two kids in the trunk will be from New York. One high class, one low class. You, know, you just start filling in blanks. So at no point in that early process do I say to myself, oh, it would be great to parallel this with the Greek epics. <laughs> but, but to your point, I would argue that the journey story is one of the oldest in Western culture because it's a very easy and natural to take the physical journey and use it as a metaphor for the personal journey, which is ultimately what is the interest of the storyteller. It's a tool by which we examine the evolution of the human spirit and psychology over time. Now, Rules and Gentlemen, as I understand it, Amor, are being adapted into long-form television as we speak. Tell us about that and what it's like as an author getting involved in your written art being transformed into a visual medium. It's a very messy process. You know, the Hollywood is famously can be very quick, but it's more commonly very slow. I've done a little bit of screenplay work for both of those projects, for Gentleman Moscow, for Rules of Civility. It was fun in a way. I got paid, you know, nicely for it. But in neither case is the final thing going to be based on my, you know, pilot. That's fine. But what I really learned through that process is it's not for me. Because the nature of the television or film, feature film, is that it's functionally, by definition, needs to be a collaborative field. That's what it is. And I am not interested in being a collaborator from an artistic standpoint. Without jinxing anything, when will we get to see them? What's your guess? The gentleman in Moscow, they're supposed to shoot in the next 12 months, I think. And so so you you could tack a year on top of that. So, you know, maybe we see it in two years or a year and a half. Rules of civility is a little bit behind that. But, you know, they might be ready to shoot in a year and a half or two, something like that. But so slow. That's the way it works. We look forward to seeing him. All right. I want to move to the next segment of the podcast, Amor. Before we do, let me just say again for our listeners, having read these books, these books are incredible. You should read them all. I cannot recommend them highly enough. Amor, we're going to do a speed round now. I'm going to give you a quick question. You give me a quick answer. First thought, best thought. You ready? Okay. I'm scared. Go ahead. What book have you reread the most times in your life? Reread. Read and reread most times. Probably the book I return to the most is Walden. I read Walden the way, you know, some people might read the Bible. I find it infinitely interesting. It, It is always thrilling for me to read a paragraph from it. And so that's probably my answer. What book are you currently reading? I am reading James Joyce's, I just finished Portrait of the Artist's Young Man. There you go. And Dubliners. And now we're doing uh, Ulysses. On a trip to Dublin, I bought that with the goal of reading much more Joyce and I've gotten bogged down. I need to recommit. Do you prefer reading a physical book or do you read on an e-reader or Kindle? I only read physical books because I always underline and and write notes to myself. So I I only physical. Fair enough. Favorite non-New York City in which to do a book reading? That's a tough one. But what I can tell you is this, is that the best towns to do book readings in are what we would call, let's say, secondary cities. Okay. The worst towns are LA and New York, for sure. Why? Because, you know, everybody's got a thousand things to do. Is that You're competing every night with a thousand things that are going on. And to go five miles in either town is a 40-minute investment. And I've now done maybe 400, you know, or 300 
spoken 300 times in public as an author. The worst event I've ever had was Book Soup in LA. My book had been, Bruce Bay had been on the bestseller list in Los Angeles for a year and a half when I went out there to speak and zero people came. Amazing. Zero. Yeah. But I got to tell you that zero is so much better than two. It's so true. Because because, because five minutes later, I was at a ball. (laughs) Whereas if the two people were there, I would have had to do the whole thing. Amazing. So yes. So the secondary cities are awesome. Kansas City, Omaha, Nebraska, you know, Savannah, Georgia. They're all awesome. Love it. All right. Fitzgerald, Faulkner, or Hemingway? Uh, Faulkner, it would be for sure. All three, I think, are amazing, but Faulkner for sure. As a child of the South, I appreciate that answer. Uh, Favorite cocktail, Amor? I'm omnidrinkerous. I have a cocktail, you know, maybe five nights a week. I have a mixed drink, and it's a different one every night. Tonight, Manhattan. No no favorites. Tonight, it's a Manhattan. How do you take your martinis? Gin, first of all. Good answer. With an olive. Great answer. Sometimes with a twist. Very cold. And I'm a shaker, not a stirrer. Ah, You and I did have a martini together. All right, last question. Veronica Mars or Nancy Drew? Oh, you know, my daughter and I, my daughter's 16. And for like years, when my wife is away and my son is away, so it's just the two of us. We do pizza and Veronica Mars. We both look forward to it. I love it. I uh, have also watched, at your recommendation, I might add, Veronica Mars with my daughter, and we quite <laughs> quite enjoyed it. It's a great show. All right. Let's move then to the last segment of the podcast. This is something we like to call Best Ideas. It's where we offer up something that's added value in our lives recently. Call it Best Ideas because our goal as investors always to maximize exposure to them. Amor, as our guest, I'm going to ask you to go first. What is your best idea this week? So because we're talking about books on the podcast and whatever, you know, So I'm a member of a book group and we have been meeting. We started when I was 39. We're in our 18th year. It's four of us. So, you know, we'll read together basically 12 books a year, maybe 10, depending on sometimes a book's big enough. We might spread it out over two dinners. We meet in a a restaurant in New York City, let's say at seven, and we usually close the place. We don't tend to read living authors at all. I mean, very rarely. So we might read six books by a single author. We might work on a geography. We might work on a theme and say, read six books that are tied together over the course of half a year. And so now, you know, now it's almost 20 years that we've been doing this. And so you think about that, that's like 200 books that we've read together. And it's basically like going to college for a second time. So anyway, my best, my idea, which is not for everybody, but is, is a book group is an amazing thing. And if you're going to do one, do it with four people. Because the reason is because when we set it up, we didn't want to have a back row. And I go and I talk to book groups and I know many people in book groups. And, you know, if you've got a book group, if you've got eight people, I guarantee you that two people have not finished the book. I love it. I think that's a fantastic idea. It's inspired me, Amor. So thank you. We are recording this in the spring of 2022. And while I'm superstitious enough not to declare victory just yet, it certainly feels like we're pivoting from a pandemic to an endemic and, and going out and going out to eat in New York is back in like truly lovely way. And now Amor and I live not too far from each other in New York City. And as I was thinking then about Amor this week and my best idea, I was thinking about how more than once I've run into him at a neighborhood restaurant that we both love. So for my non-New York listeners, this spot is worth the trip alone. And for New Yorkers, you should go or go back. My best idea this week is simply the incredible restaurant Union Square Cafe. Couple reasons to emphasize what makes it so special. First, it opened in 1985 to great acclaim, which is, I had to look that up. That blew my mind. I didn't realize it was quite that old. And somehow it has maintained its standard of excellence in food and service for over 30 years. Second, like our guest today, it had a late in life shift. It moved from its old location just off Union Square West to its current location on Park and 19th a couple of years ago. And there was this sort of cozy magic, you know, to the old spot that I always loved. 
And somehow, some way, I feel like they caught lightning in a bottle again in its current location. I've never had a bad meal there. I've literally been going there for over two decades. And Danny Meyer and crew still offer what they promised back when they opened in the 80s, which was world-class cuisine, but with this staff and crew that makes you feel like a regular even when you're there for the first time. I think they quite literally invented the concept of this sort of welcoming hospitality and fine dining as far as I'm concerned. So my best idea this week, Union Square Cafe, still great. Um, with that, more, it's time to say goodbye for the week. It was a great pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And we look forward to catching up with you live soon. Colbert, thanks very much for having me. It was great fun seeing you. All righty. Look forward to talking soon. Thanks again to our guest, Amor Tolls. Check out our show notes to learn more about Amor and his writing, including links for where you can get your own copy of his award-winning novels, A Gentleman in Moscow, Rules of Civility, or The Lincoln Highway. You'll also find a link for more about Amor's and my beloved local restaurant, Union Square Cafe, which actually ships some of their items nationwide. This podcast was brought to you by Atwill Media with HPS Investment Partners. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. 